It takes a lot of energy both to be sick and be adapting to regular changes and to try and kind of deal with the healthcare insurance beast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. In April, the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General advised the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to prevent Medicare Advantage organizations from denying coverage for care that is medically necessary. The IG looked at a sample of cases from more than a dozen insurers who provide care under the Medicare Advantage program, specifically looking at instances where payment was denied or where prior authorization was required. We're going to dig into what prior authorization is a little bit later, but the IG found that 13% of coverage denials in that sample actually met Medicare coverage rules and 18% of payment denials met Medicare coverage and MA billing rules. In other words, care that would have been approved by Medicare was either denied or delayed by Medicare Advantage providers. The IG report comes as patient advocates are fighting for a bill that will modernize Medicare and which may have some momentum in Congress. This bill would make it simpler for people with ALS who use Medicare Advantage to access medically necessary treatments more quickly and with less red tape. Now, reducing delays in accessing care and administrative burdens would also serve to enhance the quality of life for people living with ALS. According to data from the ALS-focused survey platform, nearly half of respondents said that navigating their insurance coverage impacted their stress level substantially. Later, we're going to hear from one of the people leading the fight to enact the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act, a bill that seeks to address some of the flaws in the prior authorization process. But first, I had a chance to talk with Mark Schoenbaum about his struggles navigating the Medicare Advantage bureaucracy. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, before we get into some of the finer details, uh, I'd like to just give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about your connection to ALS. All right. I mean, my connection to ALS is, you know, I'm a person with ALS. My symptoms began appearing approximately a year ago, started visiting one of the certified ALS centers here in the Twin Cities that led to a diagnosis and uh, beginning of, of treatment along the way, as everybody does. You know, I've uh, been working to make adaptations with the help of PT and OT, and I like to think some of my own, kind of the necessity being the mother of invention, creativity. My story is similar to everybody else, you know, you interview or, you know, all of us out there. I don't know that the, the deep dive really is going to tell us that much more, but I've been retired about four years from a long career in state government. And aside from having this disease and getting damn old, life is good. Well, none of us is younger than we were yesterday, so we're all going through that uh, experience together, Mark. Um, what were some of the initial, you know, day one after diagnosis up till now, what have been some of the main challenges that you faced or some of the adaptations that you've had to make, as you say? Well, I feel fortunate so far that I appear to be in the early stages and my dominant arm and hand are the main uh, limbs affected to date. So 
I've found out that I am more ambidextrous than I knew. But again, with the help of OT and PT and my local ALS Association chapter, uh, I've been making, you know, I assume all the common adaptations, eating, opening doors, picking stuff up, writing and typing. I mean, writing is pretty much gone, but typing, like I said, just pretty much just like everybody else. You mentioned that you had been retired for a couple of years, but you know, navigating insurance is never easy for anyone. Um, what has the last year as you navigate the insurance world as a person with ALS, what has that been like? Well, in many ways, I'm very fortunate in the insurance coverage I have. And in some ways, I am incredibly frustrated. Mm. I do have a retiree health plan with a very rich set of benefits. My physician started me on Rilazole right away. No insurance problems there. Following a second opinion and conclusive diagnosis, there was no problem uh, getting Radicava infusions uh, delivered at, provided at an infusion center approved. And there was even no problem getting uh, Radicava provided to my home, the drug itself provided to my home. However, even though my plan has a home infusion benefit in clear black and white that uh, one would think would cover the related home infusion supplies and nursing services. I've been working for about six weeks now to uh, try and get uh, that component covered. My plan is uh, kind of a Medicare Advantage plan, again, plus, because it's uh, part of a retiree group. And all the providers I've worked with have said, oh, well, you're retired, you're on Medicare, forget it. I've been an advocate for most of my life, and so I don't want to stop there. Yeah. So I have been learning and pursuing efforts to get this covered. And it turns out I did a couple of weeks ago get a kind of a false signal from my insurance company uh, that uh, my plan meant what it said. But as they began to work out the final details, uh, leadership uh, at the company decided that they were going to default back to traditional Medicare's policy on home infusion for Radicava, which you and many others know does not cover supplies and nursing services. The home infusion company my health system uses is happy to take my credit card of course and get me started as soon as possible but right now i am regrouping uh, i'll continue uh, going to the clinic uh, see if there are any other aspects i have yet to learn about or explore so i'm regrouping and again something folks may be interested in is that, you know, I was a healthcare profession in state government. 
you know, I advocated for those in my state who needed to make use of the healthcare safety net in both urban and rural areas. You know, I've produced and supported work in coding and billing and healthcare delivery, telehealth. So you'd think I'm a guy that if there was an answer, would be able to find it. Right. Well, so far I've struck out. And something else that I'm sure folks are living is that it takes a lot of energy both to be sick and be adapting to regular changes. Right. And to try and kind of deal with the healthcare insurance beast. So I'm taking a break at the moment. I was going to ask about that, that kind of intersection between fighting a disease and then fighting a bureaucracy. Um, You know, it's frustrating for, you know, anyone. Um, but as you lay out, you know, I, you said it better than I possibly can. You mentioned being an advocate for some time. Um, what types of advocacy have you looked at or gotten into since you got involved with the ALS community? All the healthcare providers and the folks at my local ALS association chapter have been totally supportive and helpful on a clinical and living life aspect. When it comes to insurance, everybody says, you know, from the docs to the social workers, they say, oh yeah, oh, well that, no, I don't do, I can't do that, I don't do that, good luck to you. Yeah. So I'm a person that knows how to read law, read regulations. I have connected up with uh, the government affairs people at the National ALS Association. They put me in touch with the Home Infusion Association. I forget exactly what it's called. Those folks had a few tips. I do understand that there are some legislative ideas at the federal level that would fix this for all of Medicare. But again, right now I'm taking a break. Yeah, and I know that home care and, and kind of universal home care for the community is, is such an important priority for the ALS Association and, and ALS advocates everywhere. I just think of the timing element of the time it takes to get a bill passed, the time it's taken you to get back to square one on this. Uh, and, and time is such a critical component for people living with ALS. Um, so I, I, I hear your frustration and I share it. It sounds like a nightmare. Um, you mentioned that you're taking a break. Um, I still ask, like, what, what are the next steps? Well, on a personal level, you know, I mentioned that my plan is a Medicare Advantage plan. Right. So again, as older folks may know, Medicare Advantage plans can cover whatever they want in addition to what's provided in traditional Medicare. You know, we all get health club memberships. Yeah. But, you know, stuff we're talking about costs a little more. Yes. Um, So personally, I, you know, when I come up for air again, we'll try and revisit that possibility. On a national level, you know, I do send good vibes and support to those working on this issue in the federal agencies and in Congress. 
I don't know that I've got a lot of energy to uh, jump in again to what you have already said is a long haul. It is amazing when one looks at federal health care legislation that what we're talking about changing in federal law is, you know, a couple of words, a phrase, a sentence at most. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear talk that there will or are bills. I'm sure there have been bills in the past, even before Congress lost the ability to do much of anything. Um, getting what in the big picture, not to us with ALS, but in the big picture of federal legislation is a teeny little change is shockingly hard to do. So I wish everyone uh, the best. I know there's a government affairs staff, all of us advocates as individuals and related associations and, and organizations, you know, need to do our part uh, and sign the letters, call our Congress people, you know, as we're able. But in my experience, again, I've got decades of experience in government, you know, until the lobbyist work in this corners, the right member of Congress on the right committee in the middle of the night, and hands him the piece of paper and says, you know, are you going to put this in for us? Nothing's going to change. It strikes me we're just coming out of this living experiment where it was very difficult to get to appointments because of COVID and because of social distancing requirements. Yeah, yeah, but let me interrupt you. That's yeah. all true. But laws get passed every year and stuff that's unrelated gets stuck in laws every year. Oh, absolutely. So it's always hard. You know, it's hard because of COVID. It's hard because, you know, lobbyists cost money. It's hard for this. Because it's hard for that. The wrong party, this and that. But stuff happens every year. Without question. I guess my question is, are we in an environment now where there's more of an appetite to expand access to home-based health care? Because we've just gone through this time period where it was very difficult for people to get to medical appointments. Does that create a better environment to get this type of policy change enacted? Because we've all just gone through this process, similar to the conversations we're having around telehealth, that that we see the benefit that that can provide. Are we there with home-based health care too? Well, time will tell. And I think one of the first indicators is whether the uh, COVID-related telehealth improvements get permanently placed into law. Yes. Um, and I, again, I'm retired. I don't follow this stuff every day anymore. But I think last I knew that had not yet happened. Not yet. That, that's correct. So that's the obvious one. That's the popular one. Everybody nods their head and says, absolutely. So we'll see if that happens. Right. You know, if that happens, that may pave the way for openness on more home-based care, at the same time, kind of the wheels, kind of the healthcare machine grind on. Sure. And the status quo um, works for somebody, works for a lot of people. Even, you know, like I said, you think telehealth would be a slam dunk. Well, you know, is so-and-so going to get the right fee? Is so-and-so going to get the right fee? 
you know, is it going to be, is everybody in the right location, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the process is similar for everything. So I would hope so. Uh, I know I'm not giving you perhaps the dose of, of optimism <laughs> and inspiration <laughs> that maybe you wanted today, but well, we don't want we don't, we certainly don't want fake optimism. Uh, no, we want we're trying to get a sense of of, of where things are, uh, what's broken, and then try to identify things that can fix what's broken. Because as you said, this system may be working for someone, but it's not working for you. Right, and that's why I am. I'll be a little optimistic, more optimistic here. You know, I'm glad the association is there working this. You know, there are periodic uh, successes and breakthroughs. In my state, Minnesota, there was a very senior member of the state Senate, David Tomasoni, whose people are getting to know more about, uh, who was in, unfortunately, it appears that his disease is advancing very fast, and he is not running for re-election, but he's using the energy he has and has won a new investment in both research and services for ALS in Minnesota. So sometimes things line up and we got to keep working and finding those champions. We got to keep doing that. There's no alternative. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Mark, thanks again so much for your time and your insight today. Thanks for having me. Mark's frustrations with his insurance is, sadly, all too familiar to many of you. But what can be done to address some of these challenges in Medicare Advantage? For an answer to that, I talked to Peggy Tai. Peggy is a healthcare policy expert who has worked with the American Medical Association and the Health Insurance Association of America. And she's working closely with champions of the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act to craft and advance that bill through Congress. Uh, well, Peggy, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Thank you. Happy to happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, no, Peggy, it's great to have you here. I, I mentioned it at the top of the show, but um, you know, you have been instrumental in getting the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act into Congress, and you know, hopefully making some movement through. So you're the perfect person to kind of walk us through. I want to start off with kind of a basic concept that maybe a lot of listeners have heard and dealt with, but um, I like to start with the basics. So what is prior authorization and why does it need to be streamlined? Yeah, well, if you're fortunate enough to not know what prior authorization is, you're in a really lucky position. Prior authorization is getting insurance company approval before a doctor or other provider can give you a service, a healthcare service. Waiting for the insurance companies to approve something your doctor's already ordered. That's the short version of what is prior authorization. So, and the, the Improving Timely Access to Care Act is intended to address that. So how would that bill um, address the issue of prior authorization and, and help people who are covered under Medicare Advantage? Yeah, so what's prior authorization really what started off as was a good idea that I think has been transmuted into something not such a good idea. So what the original intention of managed care was, is let's control costs. Okay, who's going to complain about controlling costs? Right. But prior authorization became a tool to delay care and to deny care. And we've seen in the last 10 years a real pickup of insurers delaying and denying care by using prior authorization. 
And in the Medicare program, so we're talking about people who are over 65 or qualify for other reasons to be in Medicare, there is generally not prior authorization in regular Medicare. In Medicare okay. Advantage, it is a managed care program. And so there's a lot more prior authorization in Medicare Advantage. So the bill we're talking about today looks at Medicare Advantage because that's where we think the problem is. The bill does two main things. It says, all right, why aren't we doing this electronically? There should be electronic prior authorization. Why isn't there? We should, we're faxing. We're faxing this kind of information now. That's crazy. Yeah, in 2022. In 2022, why are we faxing? Electronic prior authorization absolutely should happen. So it will speed up the approvals or frankly, the denials of care if they're appropriate to deny. So these delays and denials of care can be life-threatening, can be very serious for folks, especially folks who don't have a lot of time and who have a disease that is acting on them immediately. So an insurance company is substituting their judgment for the judgment of your doctor and saying, wait a minute, let's slow down. That is not good for patient health. That's a big problem. So the first part of the bill is let's do electronic prior authorization. We make all these plans do it electronically. And the second part of the bill is that the plans have to be transparent about what the rules are for prior authorization. If you talk to any physician's office, they will tell you the biggest pain they have is figuring out what the rules are. If we just knew what the rules were, we could make sure that we are following the health plan's rules. So this is all about transparency. So what does the bill do? It says, get this information from the plans, CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, get the information from the plans, look at it, and tell us what it is. So that transparency should translate into people knowing what they're buying. You have a choice to take Medicare, traditional Medicare, or Medicare Advantage. If you find out that the Medicare Advantage plans are delaying or denying care, what are you going to do? You should go to a better plan or you can go back to regular Medicare. So you have options and seniors have choice right now. They will have better choice when this bill becomes law. And I'm saying that hopefully. Uh, we're really doing a good job of getting this bill moving, but who knows how things are going to work in Congress. Yeah, obviously the sausage making can be slow and, and um, a little bit arduous up there on Capitol Hill, but you mentioned some potential movement. I, I want to go back to April. There was a, I mentioned this again at the top, but the uh, Office of the Inspector General at, uh, at HHS, HHS, yes, right. yeah, right. They, they issued a report finding that some of the delays and prior authorizations shouldn't have been delays or prior authorizations. So it wasn't uh, appropriate. How has that report shifted the dynamics, whether on Capitol Hill or just at large in terms of the, the bill that we're talking about today? Yeah, that release of that report has really shaken things up. So Congress called in the OIG and said, come brief us, come tell us, what do you mean by this? We, of course, looked at the report and said, hallelujah, it's about time. Somebody said what we think is as obvious as the sky is blue. Delays in care mean denial of care. It means people don't go get the care because they're just put up all these burdens in front of them. So we were thrilled to see it. Also, it should help Congress move this bill along because now they have this government agency saying they're right. Providers and patients are right. They've been right all along. And here's a report to prove it. 
So that should be helpful. There's also a committee hearing in the Energy and Commerce Committee where they're bringing in the OIG and also the Government Accountability Office, another quasi-government agency. Those two groups plus MedPAC, which is the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, to talk about Medicare Advantage. Is Medicare Advantage really serving America's seniors? That's a big hearing. It's a very big deal that that's going to happen on Tuesday of next week. And we'll share some links in the show notes if uh, anything comes out of that committee hearing. So you talked about the meeting that that just happened earlier this week, um, but what are the next steps for getting this bill passed and what can folks listening at home do to help? So part of what we've been doing to get this bill uh, moving is getting co-sponsors, getting a person, a member of Congress to sign on to a bill that's known as getting a co-sponsor. So getting a co-sponsor we, we were a little aggressive, I think, in a good way, and we got over 300 of them, Democrats and Republicans on the House side. That is a ginormous number. That is more, well more than the majority of the right. total number of House of Representatives. We have 34 senators who have signed on. Also, in a group of 100, that's a very large number. Yeah. So working to get co-sponsors on the bill helps Congress move legislation because it shows support. We also have organizational support. ALS is one of the supporters. Nearly 500 national or local organizations have signed on to be supporters of this bill. And you could do that through our website. It's as easy as going to regrelief.org and looking at the supporters tab and an organization, not an individual, but an organization can click there and sign on to support the legislation. An individual could go probably through you all at ALS to weigh in with their member of Congress to see if, to thank them if they're already a co-sponsor or to ask them to be a co-sponsor. Exciting to hear. I know that um, the folks on our advocacy and policy shop are always preaching to me that if you can get over that 50% threshold in the House, you're kind of making some serious progress. So uh, encouraging to hear that. Peggy, I know you have lots of important work to do, so we can let you get back to it. But thanks again so much for your time this week. Well, thank you. Uh, one other thing I forgot to mention, if you don't mind, is no, not at all. Uh, Facebook and Twitter. So we are very active. The RRC, the Regulatory Relief Coalition, is very active on Facebook and Twitter. And you'll see a lot of talk on both of those two formats about prior authorization, about regulatory relief, and how seniors, frankly, deserve better from this program. Yeah, make sure you check out the show notes and we can include some links to all of those great resources there. Um, Thanks again, Peggy. Thanks again, Jeremy. I want to thank my guests this week, Mark Schoenbaum and Peggy Tai. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. And please find time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to find even more listeners. And I said throughout the show, we will be sharing links in the show notes so you can learn more about the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.